Hello and welcome back to the Premier League Trio podcast. My name is Hayden and I'm your host as usual today. It's Tuesday afternoon, beautiful day outside and I've got a fantastic guest today. I don't think my guest today needs any more introduction, but I'm going to say it anyway. Rob Blanchett, obviously United fans will know him. Very, very familiar, very big presence on Twitter. He's a journalist, he's a presenter and of course a Manchester United fan. So Rob, without further ado, I'm delighted we're doing this today, but welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. And uh, look, we can't start a United podcast without mentioning to you know the, the Jaden Sancho. And um, look, a lot of reports, conflicting reports coming out. It seems to be British media versus German media or European media. You know, Dortmund are saying we had a deadline. British media are saying personal terms and agent fees are okay because I spoke to a few journalists. But there's European ones saying they've never been a problem. It's just mayhem as usual with united whenever they chase a big player it's a saga upon saga uh we're, we're familiar with that and um look do you think it gets done because i think that's the first question i'm going to ask and are united in a situation where it's a now or never with a player of that caliber now or never i think manchester united do understand that they need to get this deal over the line one way or the other if they want the player long term obviously he's a long-term target for united He's kind of seen as a as a building block to the future. It's obviously what the football club want to do with that number seven shirt. But ultimately, will it get done in the next few weeks? It is up in the air, and it's up in the air simply because the fee for him is extraordinary. You know, it's a big, big fee. Uh, it's not a fee that any football club would just pay unless they're one hundred percent happy with the with the rounder deal. And I'm including wages and agents' fees and everything else that goes with it. Um, there is still definitely. Um, an enthusiasm from Manchester United to get the deal concluded. The player wants to come. Dortmund will sell. You know, the only deadline is the 5th of October. There is no other deadline. I think we should just dismiss that out of hand. Um, but it really comes down to how all the fee adds up in terms of United's outlay. And they've also got other targets. So if, you could, if you're just going to buy Sancho, that, I don't think that would be too much of a, of a problem. But there are other positions that they're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I think, look, I've, I've done a few podcasts. I've done one with Kieran Maguire uh, about the finances of the club. And when you look at the sheer waste that we've had under Jose Mourinho, under Louis van Gaal, now with COVID and no fans coming in, it's a big chunk of United's revenue, £110 million, uh, per year, and, and it matched their revenue. So cutting that out from United and also United have spent big, they spent big last summer, probably close to £200 million on Maguire, Wamba Saka, you know, obviously um, Bruno Fernandez. But do you feel, and this is something that gets leveled a lot, that the Glazers only spend, like, I don't agree with this because if you actually look at it, they spent 1.2 billion, they spent it badly. Mm. But do you think that it's fair to say the Glazers don't spend when it does matter? For example, Jose getting second and then pulling the plug that summer on, you know, on the transfer dealings. Oli getting third when it looks seemingly impossible to even get top four in, in December. And now what you have is a situation where he needs to be backed. He deserves to be backed. He's earned the right to be backed. But they're just not doing what or showing the same ambition that the fans and the manager has. Again, I would say wait until the transfer window's over. I think that that's, that's key in this scenario. I know fans are always desperate for news and they want to see players coming in. Obviously, Chelsea have had this glut of players come in and that's pleased their fan base. I think with the Glazers, ultimately, they're businessmen. You know, they are about profit and loss. They're about the money they can take out of the football club. 
um, as you just highlighted there, they have invested, but they've invested badly. And that's just, that's the bottom dollar, the recruitment team that have been there for uh, before, obviously, um, Ole, um, have, they've done a really bad job, you know, and we've known it. We look at the players that United have brought in. So I still think there is a bit of that kind of stigma there with the board because Manchester United have got a board full of non-football people. And I think that is a, an issue, you know, and I think everyone in the game believes that's an issue. If you don't have a director of football, then how can you actually have a direction as to where your football club goes? Um, it's it's so hard because, you know, Donny van der Beek's a great sign-in. And if United get Sancho over the line before the transfer deadline day, I think most Manchester United fans will say, right, we're ready to go. But then there's other positions that we can look at and we can wax lyrical about, we can talk about defenders, we can talk about fullbacks, we can talk about defensive midfielders, you can go on till you're blue in the face from Manchester United. It's the story that keeps giving. But the Glazers are not football people, you know, this, we, we've said this before and they've never hidden away from that. They're always going to be the type of owners that take a dividend out of the football club. But the money that they have put back in, they've just spent it really badly. Yeah, I think there's a misconception. I'm I'm sure you saw the Swiss Ramble phenomenal thread yesterday, which was going around and doing the rounds on Twitter. And I think a lot of people are saying, wow, they've taken 89 million in dividends. But I think people have to understand in the grand scheme of things over the last, what, five years, I don't think that's that much money for Man United. It's a fraction, obviously, of what the revenue is. I think the problem is when you look at the interest payments, the debt, I mean, all of that totaling about 838 million. One of my biggest complaints is that when they came in through the door, there was a big opportunity to improve the stadium. And what I mean by that, I'm not asking for a brand new, you know, brand spanking new 100,000 seat stadium. You know, increase the capacity to 90,000 because when you look at what how much they put into infrastructure, you can't say they haven't invested in, in the surrounding areas of Old Trafford, like let's say a Manchester City. They haven't invested in the... In Carrington, it's it's pretty old compared to the, you look at Spurs's one. Obviously, in the documentary, it's, it's state of the art. They haven't invested in the hierarchy, like you said, a director of football. They've they haven't invested, I would say, in a strategy as well going forward. That's what the director of football will bring. You you can't go from David Moyes, who shouldn't have been appointed, but a, a defensive style of play, to Louis Van Gaal, possession based, and then you jump straight from the polar opposite to Jose Mourinho, who is whether you like him or not. He has a certain style of playing, which isn't in keeping with United's values. But when he does get the backing, it's boring, but it's effective. But they but they weren't fully invested in that. And now you've finally got a manager in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I know you're a big fan of his, who understands the club, understands the values. Perhaps you can maybe say his maybe his tactical acumen isn't at the top level. I, I think that's fair to say. But he's obviously doing something correctly. Um like now you're thinking come on you've got to you've got to push forward with this otherwise he's going to be left out to dry come december yeah i think firstly what i'll say is i'm i'm not a, a fan of ole like I, again objectively i um i looked at his record when he came to the football club and like you just said there you know he doesn't have the acumen of of a pep or a klopp or or other managers even kind of talk about pochettino going back but what he has done is press the reset button at Manchester United in terms of signings, in terms of style of play, but also in terms of expectations. Now, he's come to the football club. We can all say top four is an achievement to a certain extent. United have been out of the, the title picture for a while. But it's about how you balance 
several factors together. And I think he's done that really well in terms of how United are playing, how the fans feel about watching Manchester United now. Does he need backing? Absolutely. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Every manager does need backing. But I think that there is a kind of more organic approach at United at the moment. And he really is kind of filling in for the director of football role as a manager. It's very old school, you know, giving the manager the actual say in transfers that maybe Mourinho didn't have and certainly Van Gaal didn't have before that. So I think as, as far as where we are at Manchester United, there does need to be some kind of patient outlook. But it's a silly thing to say to football fans because football fans are never patient. Football is a funny business. Like, you know, we were just talking about money there. You know, one million pound is a lot of money. It's still a lot of money in the real world, you know, and it's still a lot of money in football. But we talk about things in terms of 20, 30s, 40s and 50 millions, like they're just derisory figures. The Glazers don't think like that. Most football clubs do not think like that. There has to be a balancing point. So like we're talking here, obviously, about Sancho, 100 million or something like that. It's a huge commitment. And every part of that deal needs to be perfect for it to be executed. The other side of it is because it's not just a club and a club speaking to each other, there are all these people in the middle. And these people in the middle are what hold up deals, agents, third parties. So for the Glazers, there is this issue in the sense that because they they, they have plenty of contacts across Europe, you know, they've, they've got a great kind of um relationship with clubs abroad and all of this there's no issues with those things you know they've got great relationship with Dortmund but it's more about how do they look at their targets how do they execute it and then give give Ole those players they've done that with Van der Beek they got him for a discount what I would call a Covid discount you know he would have gone to Real Madrid six months ago for a bigger fee and they're looking at it player by player. They have active targets all the time. But I do think, I keep saying it, football fans do need to be patient. I know that every day of the week they just want more news. And that's kind of where our function comes in. Like you said about Twitter, we talk about these deals, little bits that we know, people that talk to us. We can't obviously talk about sources and things like that that would be that would be incorrect. But United have been doing business quite assuredly behind the scenes now for months. And it's just if they can get them over the line. They can't always get them over the line. That is part of the football business. But I, I do think that we're still seeing incomings in the next week or so. I agree with you. I think that that is the point, isn't it? What I see a lot, obviously, you're, you're a journalist, you know, you, you're in the media. And what I really hate seeing is that when a journalist says something, look, transfers can change in a split of a second, totally. can't it? You could have, for example, the Griezmann deal. Years ago, he was he was going to sign for Man United. They got a ban. He decided to stay. A lot of top reputable journalists did say Sancho's joining United. But mm -hmm. you see in the in the comment section, I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of um, you know not, maybe nasty comments and not so nice comments. You know, saying, "Oh, I'm not going to say you're. I know you're not this. You're not a fraud, obviously." But I've seen people even having a go at someone like um, Jan Fortoft. I've had people, seen mm. people have a go at Christian Falk. People who in the footballing world, I hate this tiering business because I had Jamie Jackson on and he was fantastic, yeah. really insightful. He was... Yeah, Jamie's great. Yeah, Jamie's great. So, so helpful. Brilliant guy as well. And I hate when people, someone's made this tiering and then they just, you know, you know, crap all over journalists. And it's a really sad, isn't it? But that's the way it is. A transfer hinges, mm. it could hinge on one or two details, fine, fine details. It could go from pretty much agreed couldn't it to to not and look i agree with you i think united will make a couple of signings and i'm not 
naive enough to think they're not working on things. But I, I'll be honest, I have doubts on the Jaden Sancho deal as the time goes on. For me, it's a, it's a must. But would you entertain the idea of Carrots Bale joining on a year loan? That's the question, isn't it? Um, I'm not hot on Bale for the simple reason that I think that he has a lot of injuries. Um, I was in the Bernabeu for a game three years ago where he came on the pitch off as, as a sub and the whole stadium booed him. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, this is Gareth Bale who's won Champions Leagues and is a top player and every Real Madrid fan booed him. And it was like, whoa, I've never seen anything as extreme as that for a home home player. And I think that's more to do with kind of how he's been at Real Madrid. But would he have an impact at Manchester United? If Gareth Bale is fit at 31 years old and he's motivated to win, and, and from what we're hearing, he is, you know, that's kind of, you saw the interview maybe he did last week with Sky where he tried to kind of pro- proclaim that and said that, you know, he still wants to win. He's still young enough. But would it be a complete disaster coming to Manchester United? No, I think if, if, if Sancho isn't coming this year, then United need to find someone who boosts the attack. Uh, as it stands, I think Manchester United's front three is one of the best in the world. Like, I'm absolutely hot on our front three. I think they're great. You know, they've, they've got the great, the right balance of kind of endeavour and youth and finishing. Um, and if we started the season with those front three going forward, I would be all right with that. But I do think Gareth Bale, there, is, there might be a place for him at Manchester United. If you look at all the alternatives that we're talking about for Sancho, and let's say, for instance, Sancho is deferred for a year. And I think that that is as it stands, the more likely option as to what will happen. Um, I think there is a place for Gareth Bale. And, but what I'll say is this, Real Madrid and Gareth Bale are not interested in loan. It's not going to happen. It's been said from all parties for a while. United are interested in bringing him in on loan and with a possible uh, buy-on clause at the end of that. But it's difficult because I think he wants a home for the next three or four years, for the end of his career. If Manchester United are maybe using him as a kind of make weight in the Sancho deal as to show Borussia Dortmund that they will go elsewhere, he might not like that. And I think that might be where we stand today. Um, And I I think that's why Spurs are still the bookies' favourites, obviously, to to bring him in. Um, Would I bring in Gareth Bale if that was the last option? Um, Yeah, yeah, I would, because I think he's good enough. Uh, And I think if you bring in a bit more experience into that attack, when we've got three younger players, obviously, you know, Martial's not exactly a kid anymore, but, you know, in terms of experience, I think that does, it does pay back dividends. And I do think that he would be a success at United, but of course that's only if he stays out of the treatment room. That's a big if, isn't it? I think, um, look, there's two sides to that story with Gareth Bell. Some people think he's got a terrible attitude, but as you just said, that story is very telling of Real Madrid fans. And that's why I always say, when we'll talk about Pogba later, but I will touch on them, that people say, I always think, why would Paul Pogba go over there? Because he's exactly the sort of player they're going to get sick of after two two games, you know, the white handkerchiefs. I think they want, they're one of the worst fan bases out there. There's a lack of patience, spoilt. I mean, they win, but, you know, I think they're a nasty, nasty club. As Sir Alex said, I wouldn't sell them a virus, even though he sold them Ronaldo, Van Nistelrooy, Beckham, the list goes on. Yeah, but um, no, let's move on to a few more rumours before. I want to go into Oli a little bit more and the season mm-hmm. that's just happened and what is to come ahead. But um, strong rumours of uh, Sergio Reguilon today, especially mm-hmm. last night, it broke that. It looks like he's close to United. I, I think it'd be a fantastic signing. I'm not I'm not too hot on Luke Shaw. I think Luke Shaw's definitely... Look, he had a terrible injury, I think. 
coming back from that and being able to play at all is, is phenomenal. That was a pretty heartbreaking injury. He was on such great form. He was looking like the player we we spent thirty million on. And now after the, after the restart, I thought he played pretty well. I thought his overlapping runs were a massive asset to the way Oli wants to play. My biggest problem with him is one, his injury record, and two, I just. I need more offensive output from my wing back, especially when Wan-Bissaka will sit a bit deeper. He's not the attacking outlet that our, our left fullback should be. And sure, zero assists, zero goals. Um, I think that's a problem for me. And obviously, I think Williams, right foot, left back, it's not for me. He needs to move over to the right. So now you're looking at Reguilon. It looks like it's going to happen. Um, my first question is, do you think that's going to happen? And my second question is, Thiago. I'm sure you've been asked about this on many, many podcasts. World-class player. A player that becomes available for 30 million and who's just led Bayern Munich, conducted that midfield. Okay, 29 years old. Injury record is a bit iffy, but I think you've got to take a punt on it. United need more quality. They need more winners for me because we saw it against Sevilla. We lacked that. I would say probably... I would say we lacked that sort of game game sort of know-how, I think. We looked a bit naive, and that's why Gareth Bale could be a good signing. So my questions are, Regilon, do you think it's going to happen? Are you excited about it? And Thiago, what have you heard on that Thiago front? Um, and would you entertain the idea of him playing at Old Trafford? I still think Tellers is more likely than Regulon. I've said that all along. I've never deviated away from that. I think things with Regulon, we all know he's a really good player. Um, Real Madrid are happy to let him go. They're shopping him around Europe. It's not just Manchester United. You see, this is the thing. We talk about United being linked with players. Uh, Regulon's being shopped everywhere. So this is not a Manchester United thing. This is a European-wide thing. He could end up at several clubs as it stands. Uh, Real Madrid want a buyback clause. That is, again, not, not a secret. And that's something Manchester United won't entertain. So will this deal get done? I, I I don't know. It, the, he's not been scouted by United. He's not been part of United's uh, wider picture in terms of transfers. Could he get, end up at United? Of course. You know, we're talking twenty five million. Then then yes. You know, it's within that ballpark. But as I said, I think Tellers is still more likely in terms of the deal that they would get for that player. It's not about who's the better player. It's about who fits what Manchester United think in terms of a deal will improve their squad and all of those things. With Thiago, what we've heard. Uh, again, quite consistently, is that he wants to leave the football club because he wants to go to the Premier League. So that was that was the first point of call of his ambition. He wants to go and play in the Premier League. Obviously, Liverpool were the, were the obvious club everyone was talking about, but they had a, a problem with Wijnaldum and Barcelona and how that deal was going. And one thing that wasn't really reported in the press early on was that Wijnaldum was in talks with Liverpool to stay. So that was conveniently left out when people talk about Thiago. It now looks like that he might still go to Barcelona. You know, that is not dead, that deal. And if that is the case, then I've got absolutely no doubt that Thiago ends up at Liverpool. I think that is the way it will be. Again, when we talk about £30 million, we're also talking about £300,000 worth of week in wages. These, these are things, again, we, we, we always just dismiss them as being like small things, small details. They're huge details when you add it up in profit and loss. So United have to decide that if they're willing to pay thirty million pound or three hundred thousand pound a week for a player to improve their midfield, their midfield. Now we know he's world class. He is world class. He's twenty nine years old. You talked about the injuries. There are all sorts of other factors. Would we love to see him at United? Of course. You know he's a great player. Um, 
And I think only two or three days ago, there was this feeling before Bayern Munich actually spoke out about this, where they their name dropped Liverpool and Manchester United, um, that United kind of edged ahead of Liverpool because Liverpool were being a bit funny about the potential deal. And they also don't want to pay £30 million and £300,000 a week. So that's the impasse with this transfer. Um, I do think he'll end up in the Premier League. I think there's no doubt about that. I think Liverpool are the favourites. But it's not a deal that Manchester United might not revisit in the last week. I think that's going to go all the way to deadline day because this is what most football clubs are trying to do. They're trying to string these out and get these COVID discounts on both wages and transfer fees. And it's understandable, you know, and I think that that's how Manchester United think. That's how Liverpool think. Liverpool are not going to be enthused to buy Thiago if they agree a deal with Wijnaldum. You saw the other day, Liverpool's first game, Wijnaldum played. You know, he's very much part of Klopp's plans. And he's a different kind of player to Thiago. So I think if uh, if Klopp can have him because he sells one and brings in one, then, yeah, that, that will be the way it works out. But Manchester United are kind of the sleeper hit, I think, behind it. They could go for him in the last week if they feel that their targets are not coming off and they're looking to strengthen the midfield. It's too logical. Yeah, I isn't agree. It? I think I, I know people don't yeah, like logic. Definitely... <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, they want well, the situation angle on it. A lot of it is just logic. Absolutely. Well, it's it's what people say. You know, you know when we see around on Twitter, oh, Regulon for twenty five million pounds, uh, Tiago for thirty million pounds. You that combined, you get you get Jack Grealish, and you, we everyone says, oh, nah, United are not clever enough to do that because you don't see United make clever deals or sensible transfers. I think that's changing over the past hmm. few years. The transfer committee that's come in obviously is is doing some wonders. I think you're right. Solskjaer is doing a sort of director of football. We'll segue into that actually now. He we are doing sort. Of, he is doing sort of a director of football role. And <clears throat> when you look at um, the modern structure of a football club, the director of football has emerged as such a pivotal pivotal role. I think it's obviously bridging the boardroom with the with the footballing side. When we had Sir Alex and we had David Gill, that was. Sir Alex controlling the whole club. David Gill obviously was was more the finances side. But when those two left, the whole the whole structure of the club left with them. United, the first thing they should have done was invested in the structure. Whether you anyone thinks Arsenal are, are a good good side or not, we know they're not particularly great. But what they did do, Mislintat came in, Edu came in, Sanlehi came in. They tried to supplement so that the way I always look at it is if Oli left tomorrow. And we've already said he's not the best tactically, but if he left tomorrow, we'd be in the same situation again because a whole club would, or the whole plan would leave with him. And this is the problem that people have, I think, with the fact we don't have a director of football. It should be... Look, a manager is a transient position. I was looking up a few statistics earlier. Since 2012, the average longevity or reign of a manager in the Premier in England, sorry, in the English Football League, is 14 months. Yeah. Such a transient position. So clubs are rightly not putting that much emphasis or that much um, power with the manager. You look at Arteta, he's just a coach, really. He has a say, but uh, inevitably the final decision is with the, with the powers above. So my, my question is that you see Oli's come in. Again, I think it was, if in, in reality, it was a punt. They thought Jose's gone. What's going to buy us time? Look, I'm quite cynical with the board. So what's going to buy us time? Okay, we'll bring in a legend. The fans won't turn on a legend, will they? He's he's scored the the goal in '99. He's very likable. You know, it, it's it's it's. I know it's so cynical. You can completely shut this down. I'll, I'll give you the opportunity. But that's my view. Came in, had that fantastic run. The PSG result was the pinnacle. Then it was very poor 
for for towards that end of that season. And I will be honest with you, I, I had doubts whether he should be the manager. I thought Mauricio Pochettino for me was always the target. He should have always been the target. Then we had that summer where we invested fairly heavily, didn't sign Bruno Fernandez, massive mistake. Now you come up to D December. I'll be honest with you, and I've been very clear about this. And I think it's important as a as a, a human being to admit when you're wrong, to also accept that, and to also accept that you know what, maybe you need to give credit where it's due. Come December, I did a podcast, and I was so angry after the Burnley game. I laid into Ollie, and I thought, "This is it. You got to go." Bruno came in, the whole complexion changed. Pogba came back, Rashford came back, yeah. and we saw a fantastic end to the season. So Ollie deserves another chance, but. My my worries are that in two or three years' time, could you see United winning Premier League title under Oli? Because is he tactically good enough? That is where my issue is. So talk to me about how you assess the progress under Oli, whether you agree with anything I've just said. And if it's rubbish, just shut me down, Rob, because that's fine as well. That's no, no, all good. Uh, let's take it point by point. Uh, I think in terms of the Glazers' relationship with Ole and what they were thinking in terms of after Mourinho, they gave Mourinho a big contract. They saw him as kind of the future of the football club in terms of being able to win a title. As we've touched upon before, we know that with, with Mourinho, it's his style of play is an issue and also about how he manages football clubs, especially from year two to year three onwards. So the disaster that ended up being Mourinho in those last few months uh, was kind of expected. I do think with Ole, they brought him in as a temporary measure. We know he came in as an interim. Um, but at the same time, I don't think United at that point were seeing him as any kind of long-term manager. Um, obviously, after the initial success, they gave him this contract very quickly. What I will say is that contract is minimal. It's not, it's not a big contract. He's not on the biggest wage in the world. He's on a very good wage, but you know he, he wasn't given a kind of Mourinho-sized contract. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, for United, it was a kind of like, let's see where this goes. As soon as I gave him the contract, United flopped. We saw that, didn't we, at the end of that season. It was awful. I think like every manager, you have to kind of give someone 12 months or around that period and then judge them after what you've seen. And that's how I kind of do it as a fan. I always try and think in the first context, as a football fan, what do I see with my eyes when I'm at games? I'm very lucky enough to go to most of Manchester United's matches. So I try and look at it from that context. So I, I was kind of had a a kind of unbiased view of Ole before that. I, I don't really subscribe to legends and all of that stuff. I think it's you, you're only as good as your last day and all of that. That's how I think. Um, so I think with Ole, you know, he's taken a football club onwards from that point of, as you said, Burnley, which I think was a kind of turning point. Uh, United were terrible around that period and it really did look like he was on his last legs. It looked like it was going to be finished. And there was lots of talks behind the scenes that he would be soon gone. And, Pochettino was part of the bigger picture. Uh, unfortunately for all uh, Ole's detractors and everyone else who doesn't want him at the football club, United suddenly started winning after that, playing really well and ended up third, which is no one could have predicted. I've been obviously watching the All or Nothing Spurs documentary like everybody else, and it all flashes up with the league table, doesn't it? And you see Tottenham crawling up the table and then there's Manchester United at 14. So like, far back. Yeah. Exactly. So so people can't underestimate the job that Ole's done, whether they like him or not. And I think this is part of the problem with Twitter and social media is that people kind of pitch their fork in and say, right, I don't want this manager. So even if he does well, I'm going to go after him. And, you know, if he does terribly, then we're going to murder him. And I think it doesn't matter if he's a legend. Obviously, we know. I think there's a little 
thing over on this side here. There's a picture of Ole winning the Champions League for United there. Um, it's a historic moment for our football club. But if he loses a few games, he gets sacked. That's how it works. You know, this is not, not a new thing for football. It doesn't matter if you're a legend or not. Same with Lampard at Chelsea. You could be the greatest legend ever. But So I think with Ole, I think we have to give him this season. We see how it goes. After five games, if United lose three and draw two, then there's going to be a lot of talk about moving him on. And that's where he stands. And he totally understands that. I think the, the feedback coming at the end of this season during lockdown was that he wasn't 100% sure if he would be held on to his job. If those last games had gone badly and he'd ended up six, I think he would have been sacked. I don't think the Glazers would have, would have blinked twice about doing that. Stylistically, it's difficult because people in the modern game now want a Klopp or a Pep who have this all-encompassing philosophy about their football. But as I said in one of the podcasts I did the other day, last year Pep Guardiola lost nine Premier League games. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer lost eight. That's just one game. But it's, it's one game, ultimately. And you can talk about philosophy till you're blue in the face. Football is about winning. And as also, as I said in that, if Mourinho had somehow got United further on in his kind of master plan to kind of win the title um, and he was winning 1-0 every week, then you can't really criticise him because he's winning games and that's what he's paid to do. We can sit there and talk about style until we're blue in the face, but style is an additional point. And I think Ole's grasped that. I think Ole knows that he's got to try and sort out the defence, the midfield and the attack and do it in a holistic manner. But ultimately, he wants United to play well. He kind of has a similar ethos to how we think, you know, when we're at games. And I think we've been getting there. I don't know what you think on that. You know, I think that as much as people might not have faith in him and his abilities, I think that he trained under Sir Alex Ferguson and that's given him a lot of leeway in terms of what the football club should be doing because he's seen what works and what doesn't work. And I think he'll live and die by his record this season. You know, if he takes United on and we get closer to City and Liverpool, I don't expect a title challenge this year. I think, again, bringing Sancho and bringing another 10 players, it's not going to happen yet. You just have to wait and hope that with every game you get better. What I will say to end this segue is that you've only got to beat what's in front of you every week. You don't have to beat City. You don't have to beat Liverpool. You have to go to Burnley and win. You have to go to Crystal Palace and win. You know, you've got to play those three promoted teams and beat them. That's what Ole will be judged on this season because that's how you accumulate points and that's how you put together a title run. Um, I, I'm hoping, obviously, for good things from United this year. I'm, I like the team. I think they're they're much more interesting to watch. It's not perfect. There's issues in the defence. You touched on Luke Shaw there. You know, there's players who've still got a lot to prove. But I do think lots of players in the last 12 months have, uh, have kicked on. I think there's been an improvement in a lot of their development. Yeah, fantastic answer, Rob. Fantastic answer. What I will agree with uh, is that this whole, you know, you pitch a fork in and that's it. I'm not going to change my opinion. It's, it's, a real, it's a real problem in Twitter. And, you know, what people will do, I, I've seen it happen to you. People will dig your old tweets out. And then because they'll, one, one little event will happen and then they'll just take out the contents completely and then they'll do that. And it's happened to me. It happened to me recently as well. Uh, I, I said Ollie out. I remember I, I remember categorically tweeting hashtag Ollie out. And then I said Poch in and someone dug it up. Like, I haven't got as big a following as you. I'm growing slowly. But, you know, obviously my face is out there now. So I'm now I've now got a track record on what I say and now what I tweet. But uh, I'm not one of those who can delete my tweets. But what I will say is that there's definitely improvement on the style. And I was having a sort of 
back and forth with someone on Twitter yesterday. He's he's, he's someone I get on well with, but he's just so he can't see he can't see anything that Oli does well. And, and he's saying, "Oh well, Klopp would have done this and Guardiola would have done that." Yeah, they probably would over our squad. That's not I'm not denying that. I've never said Oli's the best tactician. We know he's not. We we've seen that in particularly big games, he, he he doesn't change it. I don't think quick enough. He doesn't make substitutions quick enough. Again, I said to him, that's probably down to the squad. And the, you look at that bench and you look, Dan James, Juan Mata, Igalo. It's not particularly inspiring, is it? But I said, what I will say is that he's had, this is not, he said, United need to go for titles. But yeah, we do. We're Manchester United. But then we also have to understand that football comes in cycles. It's not our time to win. We've, we've had immense success for god knows how many years and it hurts to look over and see unfortunately liverpool manchester city and other teams in in their bucking in the glory right now but what i will say to him is that this is not united after fergie this is seven years of terrible investment manager change mishmash of players this is not united of top two this is united fourth and below to be honest fourth and sixth very rarely we finished above above fourth twice, I believe, under Jose and, and obviously under Oli. I say it's got to take time. You you can't expect it to change overnight. But where my frustration will be leveled at is the speed and efficiency, efficiency of our business. And I just want to ask you quickly before we move on to the midfield and Pogba and other topics is I'm frustrated at the way we conduct our business. We long everything out. You know, sometimes I think we're doing it because it's a PR sort of spin on it. But this it's not a PR spin with the Sancho deal, for example. You look over at Chelsea, you have mentioned they they do their business phenomenally. Different business model, uh, different ambitions. I, I don't think the Glazers have the same ambitions. I don't think they're aligned with us us uh, fans. But um, do you share that view as well, that the speed and efficiency is, is not good enough for a big club? Partly. I, I think the issue with efficiency comes from not having a director of football. You know, we, we touched upon before there with Fergie and, and David Gill. In those days, David Gill was the director of football, essentially. He's, he had a football background. He was very smart and savvy, incredible contact book. And he went and did the work for Fergie while Fergie managed the team. That's how it worked. That was their kind of dual basis. And most football clubs work like that. You know, David Dean and Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. That was how football clubs were structured. United's big failure in the last few years is not to have a director of football. But what I disagree on is that football club's objectives. Most of the time, football clubs still do want to win. The reason why they want to win is because win, winning brings in more money. It's as simple as that. You know, uh, the Chelsea board, obviously, they have a kind of oligarch owner who has money to burn and will put that money into the football club. And that's the big difference between, say, the Glazers and even FSG or any American consortium and maybe owners from the Middle East and Russia. So th that's the kind of difference there in terms of how football clubs are structured. Um, I think Manchester United do play a PR game. I'll say that as a journalist who works in the same kind of field, uh, in the sense that if they buy Jadon Sancho in the last week of the transfer window, who wins the transfer window? Manchester United. So Manchester United want to win the transfer window every time. That's, that's the bottom dollar. That is absolute truth. Uh, people think that these deals should be conducted six months before and that you're done and you get them into pre-season and that's what's important and get them mixing with the other lads and all of it. It's not really how it works. It's that these are business transactions and business transactions do take time. And ultimately timing comes down to what you're trying to achieve. And if Manchester United buy Jaden Sancho with a week to go of the transfer window, everyone will say, wow, amazing business Manchester United. And nobody talks about these last six weeks 
ever again. It's over. But we have seen it with uh, with previous targets. You can go all the way back to say someone like Wesley Schneider. You know, you can go way back there in terms of that. Or even with Di Maria, it was a similar kind of way that it looked like it was on and then it was off and it was on and it was off. United have had these transfers in the past where sometimes they work out. Paul Pogba worked out. And sometimes you, they go for a player and it just doesn't come off. You know, you can go all the way back to Ronaldinho and that was during Fergie and Gilst. Oh, sorry, that was obviously at the end of the, that period where, where Ronaldo came in, but it was at a time when Manchester United were looking for a superstar and football fans were outraged, this is pre-Twitter, that Ronaldinho didn't come to Manchester United. It was like everyone was horrified because he was coming. So this is not new and I think people think it's new that United conduct their business in this manner and... This is just about the Glazers. Um, it is partly about the Glazers in terms of how they structure the football club. Um, they are primarily interested in their dividends and what they take out of the team. But it's also how most teams do work. You know, I don't subscribe to this that other teams have different kind of ambitions. Um, I think Manchester City, in terms of the way that they have their resources and their funding kind of uh, structured, that they can quickly go and do a deal like that if they want to go and do it. But they're still thinking about shirt sales. They're still thinking about things that Manchester United think about commercial endeavour. They're not just thinking about, you know, if this play comes in, do we look good? Most boards are not bothered if they look good or not. They're just interested in doing the business that they think will further their agenda. Like I said, with Chelsea, they brought in these players. And I think that it's going to be a tough season for Chelsea. I've said that on other podcasts. I think it's difficult when you bring five or six players in, no matter how good they are because they all have to gel immediately. And I think we saw with the Chelsea game last night that they look like a team that looks that needs a bit of work still, even with these players. Long-term, they might have the correct pieces, or it might be in a case that six months' time, we're all going, that was a terrible transfer window. Those players have completely bummed out, and that's not what they need. I think United do need to make additions still, um, but fans need to just calm with it and just actually see what happens. If we get to October the 5th and they've made no transfers, that's the time for fans to get annoyed and to get upset and say, right, hang on, we've only made one transfer here with Van der Beek and we needed more. I think most Manchester United fans would say that it's a window that they need to perform in to actually give Ole the chance to to move on. What I will say is that I think United ended the season well in terms of the current playing staff. And I've got a lot of faith in these boys. You know, I think the players that are coming through, the younger lads, we've talked about the the young players before, like Mengi. I think there there is there's room for two in Zabi in this in this starting eleven somewhere. Um, there are other things happening. I do think United will make a signing. It is more likely to be Gareth Bale today than any other player. Um, and if you bring in Bale and Van der Beek, does that improve Manchester United? I think it does. Yeah, very fair points. What I will say is, I'm I'm definitely one of those that subscribes to the view that Axel Tuanzebi could be the centre-back that we, we're we looking for. I'm a massive fan of Upamakana. I would bite your hand off tomorrow if you said, here he is, because I think he's he could be the best centre-back for decades to come. But Tuanzebi is exactly the sort of player that Maguire needs as a partner. He's He's got a great recovery pace. He's aggressive. He's, he's strong under the high ball, something Lindelof doesn't have. I do think Lindelof gets a lot of unfair stick. I don't think he's as bad a footballer as people say. Just that partnership just isn't working. And it's all about partnerships. We look back at the Rio and Ferdinand, Carvalho and Terry. You know, you look at these partnerships, which um, which have won Premier League titles, some of the best ones, they complement each other's deficiencies. What I will say on Mengi as well is that he's another one I'm excited about. And I think there is a very big possibility if Tunzebi can't keep fit, 
Eric Bailly, unfortunately, is made of glass. And when he does play, he scares the hell out of me. But he also could be fantastic. <laughs> he, he's he's complete, you know, sort of chalk and cheese in his performances. And I, I will say that um, Tunzebi, if he can keep fit, and Mengi, if, if he can keep fit, that they can both take that spot. But um, what I will ask you one more question before we move on to actual the actual midfield options is, you spoke about briefs. For me, this summer, I feel like there's not actually been that much news going around. There's been a lot about Sancho, but... Are United much more quiet this summer? They seem to have kept their cards much closer to their chest. I mean, obviously, you're a journalist. You, you speak to people at the club. And you're aware. You work in those circles. Is this a case of United seem to be much more quiet about their business? And the briefs that are coming out are, are just usual briefs that fans are just lapping up because they're frustrated. I think United are much more comfortable where they are now than they were 12 months ago. So during the Mourinho period, like you talk, you you touched upon Harry Maguire there. The reason why United didn't want to pay 80 million for him at that point was they were not sure about what was going to happen with Mourinho. So that was why they didn't give him the money. It wasn't a case of not we're not backing the manager. It was like, you've had a lot of money. We're not seeing the returns that we want to see. Second is fine, but second by a million points is nothing. You might as well be third. So uh, that was kind of where they stood at, at that point. I think now with Ole kind of guiding the ship, and this is, again, where football fans don't want to hear this because it's based around logic, is that in that 12 months, he's given the United board good advice. They've bought players that have upgraded the squad to a level. You know, I think Bruno Fernandes was certainly his signing, a player that the board were not hot on originally. When we were talking about Bruno Fernandes to Manchester United in the first instance, United were quite clear and they briefed the press. They were not interested in him. That was a direct brief from Manchester United. Six months later, they bought him because the manager pushed for it. So that's on Ole. But you even look at Wambasaka. I think that obviously there's a lot of development for him to go. We know that he's not the attacking fullback that we need. But I would say he's probably one of the best defensive fullbacks in Europe. You know, he's got that in him. Harry Maguire, I don't think has had a fantastic individual 12 months at Manchester United. But again, you look at the stats. We are a better defensive team since he signed, which is why you pay 80 million to make that statistical difference. So he's done that. Um, and then you kind of look at all the little tweaks I think he's done with playing positions. And I think you look at Anthony Martial in improving as a number nine drastically, uh, bringing in Mason Greenwood, but being really soft and slow with him, bringing him in slowly and getting to to perform. That's all on the manager. The manager has been the architect of all of that. So there's lots of good things to sing about. And I think United, are, as a football club, are much more kind of content in their own skin knowing that if they don't get Sancho in this window, that there are other targets. And I think Gary Neville put it really smart the other day where he said, you know, if United don't get Sancho, that's not the be all and end all. And I agree with that because what you do then is you go back to your shopping cart and you find another player that fits whatever your agenda is. And we all know that Manchester United have needed a right winger or a right-sided forward since the start of time. You know, we've been chucking... Juan Matter in there, and obviously Mason did an amazing job last season there. But we know that we need a specialist, and that was why Sancho was the primary target and remains the primary target. He's still the player that United want. Um, if you bring in Bale, that means that you might have to shift around that front three to accommodate him. Uh, you might even see Bale play a more central role at times because he's, he's done that for Real Madrid. Um, but I think United are, are in a good place, and they feel that. You know, the karma within the club is better even if the football fans maybe are still in this kind of fraught panic when it comes to the transfer window. But I think that's all part of the transfer window. It's a it's a pantomime at the end of the day, these weeks. 
it's it's one of our hardest kind of two months of the year for journalists because we hear lots of news and we have to decide which is true and what isn't and there's a lot that isn't and we know that um and we have to kind of pin our masts pin our flags on the masts when it comes to those things and, and decide who's telling the truth because ultimately clubs want to move players on but uh, I think we're I think United are in a a much more balanced position and ready to start the season. I feel sorry for you, journalists. I mean, I know it's it's fast paced and it's fun, but honestly, Twitter's just made it so much more difficult because, like I said, if you pin your colours to the mast and and obviously it doesn't happen, then you trust your sources, mm-hmm. don't you? You everyone's got different yeah. sources and you trust them, and I think that's why uh, people probably have people think Fabrizio's up there with the best because, you know, he's someone that probably doesn't put information out. I've seen some that are awful. I, I feel bad saying this, but some of them are just, they just regurgitate anything. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, there's a few like that, but you know, the best ones are the ones that are a bit more measured than they wait. But um, let's move on from transfers because I hate transfers and um, <laughs> I'm all about what happens on the pitch. I love the analysis. I love the tactics. I love talking about things, you know, on a more of a broader context. And I, I'm looking forward to talking about that later, but let's talk about, the midfield options. You're looking at United's midfield for years, I think. Even under Sir Alex, remember when we were linked to Strootman, obviously Wesley Snyder was one eye. <laughs> Nico Gaitan was another one, you know, those two names. But you know, you had you had Van der Vaart at a time. I mean, I'm yeah. 25, so how old was I at the time then? Probably what, like 14, 15. So you had Van der Vaart was always linked. You had um Jean Moutinho was linked as well mm. at a time. United's midfield, and then they brought skulls out of retirement. So United's midfield, I think, has always been strong. I think and maybe the last decade it's been an area which we haven't been able to one control the, the game which is what we did with skulls and carrick in midfield i, I never mm-hmm. felt we replaced uh replaced carrick which is why i want tiago and i think what we should we struggle to do as well is that there was that calming presence that's why tony cross would have been a phenomenal signing wouldn't he when we were linked with him mm-hmm. and so when you're looking at that midfield now and suddenly there's a lot of options <clears throat> you look at perhaps the defensive area with uh, Nemanja Matic. Big fan of him. I think he's a very underrated player. But he's ageing. He can't play, I don't think, more than once a week. Fred is one that divides opinion. I think he had a very good season up until the restart and form dropped off. He wasn't in the team as much. Not a £50 million player. I don't think he's shown enough, but he offers something different in the squad. He's got legs, he's got energy, tenacity, great attitude. I think that's important. Having a, a level head is important in any football club scott mctommy is another one who splits opinions some people i think one of my problems with united fans is we all love our our players that come through the academy it's it's, it's part of our, our values our culture it's i'm more happy seeing a greenwood you know go and perform than the sancho that that's that's me personally but you have to also take into account that someone like mctominy You've got to also assess him as a player. If he wasn't an academy player, would he be at United? Would United go and spend the money on him? I have doubts whether they would. I think while he provides energy as well, he's a he's covers every blade of grass, great attitude. If you're going to play on that deep role, can he can he pass like Matic? Does he have the range? Not sure. Does he have the positional awareness yet? Again, not sure. Is he good enough to play as a number eight? Passing-wise, forward passes, incisive passes? Not sure. So, for me, I'd be looking to loan him, but he's obviously sticking around. Good options. Then you look further forward. You've got Pogba, obviously. Bruno's been a fantastic signing. We don't need to say any more about him. Van der Beek is very shrewd as well. Do you see a situation where United go and play Van der Beek, Pogba, Bruno together? Or is that just against the smaller sides? Or would you definitely still be going for a Matic, uh, Pogba and a Bruno? 
I think 70% of the time Manchester United will play those three. You know, it's going to be Pogba sitting as the quarterback, as I call it. You're going to have Van der Beek doing more of the box-to-box. And you're going to have Bruno being more of a number 10 this year than he was, say, last year. You know, even though he, he obviously led the press, I think you'll see him playing a lot closer to Martial through the centre next season, simply because of Van der Beek's presence. Um, I think when you look at the whole midfield collective, I agree with you. I think Manchester United have been weak in midfield for years, and that goes back to maybe even the last two or three years for Fergie. You know, when United beat Arsenal 8 to Old Trafford, the starting midfield was Anderson and Cleverley. Yeah. So it, 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 it was, it's been a problem for years. One of the reasons why Paul Pogba left the club when he was a kid was that there were players playing in front of him that were not as good as him, even as an 18-year-old, you know, 17 and 18. And he was seeing, you know, Rafa de Silva start in central midfield in cup games rather than him. So obviously when he came back to the football club, I think many people were looking for him to be this kind of all-encompassing figure to lead the midfield. However, he's never been that kind of player. Again, on other podcasts, I've spoken about Pogba's position. And he's never played as number 10. It's not his role. He's never played. When he was a kid, he played at number 10. But he, at Juventus, he played the left side of a three. Um, at Manchester United, Mourinho was always um, happier playing him deeper. But that was because Mourinho played a low block. Um, and you look at kind of where you go from here. I think bringing in Van der Beek shows that United have this system in their heads in terms of playing those three in a staggered way up the pitch. Will those players on the bench be able to replicate what they do? Well, no, but I think that happens at most football clubs. You do get um, teams like Man City who've got an incredible bench, but most football clubs really struggle to have true depth, you know, like for like. We talk about having two players for one position. That's the... That's the philosophy at the end of the day, but it's it's not always the actuality. It's not always reality how that works out. Um, I think, you know, Fred showed last season that he's got potential in terms of, of minutes. I think when United play the big teams next year, where they play City or Liverpool, Matic starts. He'll be the guy playing as a number six, as a traditional screener in front of a back four. Pogba might have a little bit more of a kind of visceral role in those kind of games. But I, I don't think that we're going to see anything mind-blowing next year tactically. I think there's a much more natural feeling about where players are going to play. Uh, and Paul Pogba, where does he want to play? He wants to play exactly where he's playing. I know, again, fans don't want to hear that. He's happy playing what would be a modern number six role. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean you're a defensive midfielder. You're not screening. It means that you get the ball deep and the game is in front of you. That's what he wants. He wants the game in front of him. He wants runners in front of him. He wants someone like Bruno who will work and someone like Van der Beek suits him. You know, that's why United, I think, have brought him into the football club. He'll go and do all of that kind of busy work in, in, the, centre, in, in the centre of the pitch. So I think the midfield is, is so much better than what than what it was. You, you mentioned Scott McTominay there. I was someone who was not hot on Scott on the early days, um, but I'm a big fan of his. I think last season he kind of hit the buffers a little bit and at times, you know, didn't didn't play well when, when maybe you were expecting uh, a little bit more from his uh, in, in, from his production rate. But he's not really in the squad for that. He's in there to kind of fill a gap and to provide energy. And he's not going to be this... You know, he's not, he's not going to be Thiago passing the ball out from the back and being this world-class midfielder. But not every player in your team can be world-class. You've got to have your Darren Fletchers. You've got to have your John O'Shea's. Football clubs are built on people who do the work 
as well as having all these star names that, that can do all the beautiful stuff and all the flair. It's about balance. So I, I wouldn't want Scott to go on loan this season. I think if there's any injuries, he's going to be needed. And he's proved that when he gets a run of games, he can perform. You know, he scored that brilliant goal against City, obviously in the derby. I was there with my son. It was an amazing moment to see that ball from right in front of us go in. Uh, it will go in history, that that moment, in terms of uh, as a winner from, you know, 40 yards, 45 yards. And I think that Scott kind of plays like a fan. You know, he's a football fan and he and he plays that that badge on his chest means something. And we need more of that. And I think that's where the club is going in terms of direction of, of personnel. So I'd like to keep him because I think that putting him out on loan, you might, you might as well sell him. If you don't want to keep him, if he's, if he's a player that's surplus to requirements, then you buy someone else who's going to do that job maybe from the bench. Um, and, you you know, an 18 or a 19 or 20-year-old, we should really talk about Medjbury. He's a player that we're going to start seeing in the next 12 months. Um, and I think that's more the course of how it will work in Manchester United's midfield when he breaks through. And then maybe Scott would be surplus for two requirements, but at the moment we keep him. Yeah, you make fantastic points about Pogba. We, let's, let's segue into the, sort of the, the Pogba and the split opinions that people have on him. You are spot on when, when people expected Pogba to come in and essentially be the main man, lead the midfield. And when you watched him at Juventus, he had prime Pirlo behind him. He had uh, prime Vidal. You know, he was never the main man, but he was, I, I don't see Pogba really as a leader. If let's say Maguire loses, did lose the captaincy, I would have been giving it to Bruno because mm-hmm. what Bruno's done is when Bruno's come in, he's, he is that character. I spoke to um, well, a, a quite a big uh, Portuguese journalist recently. He said to me that Bruno Fernandes, like he's not surprised at anything he's seen from him. He yeah. said that he's always had this character. He, 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 he if anything, he actually, embraces the criticism or he embraces the pressure uh, and to be the leader and to be the one that the focal point is on. And you've seen as Bruno's come in, Pogba's performances have just shot through the roof. I honestly think what we saw during the restart and some people want to see, like you said, he's not a number 10. They want to see him running into the box because he's got fantastic attacking attributes. But for me, what I was most impressed with was how simple he kept his game, kept the ball ticking. He controlled the tempo. As As you said, he sat a bit deeper with Matic. Uh, what I really like about him is that he can do everything. He can he can progressively carry the ball. He's got he's like a quarterback. He can pass. He's got great vision. He's very skillful for, for such a, a, a towering person. He's you don't see someone with that who's that technically gifted. He can he's got an eye for goal. Fantastic player. But uh, there are a lot of people that are saying, and I, I'm possibly in this camp, that if Real Madrid had the money or Juventus had the money and they put it down, he wouldn't be at the football club. Do you agree with that that view? And why do you think he is also very unfairly targeted? Because I, I don't want to throw around the the racism word or the, the racist word, but there is an agenda that's going on with certain people in the media. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And it's it's you're wondering... Is it his price tag? Because there's other players like Kepper, who is shocking, quite frankly, shocking. No one brings up his price tag. And Pogba, week in, week out, is someone that gets unfair. And quite frankly, it's kind of disgusting, I think, the the negativity he gets. Yeah, what I will say is I think any young, successful black man, especially in, in football, gets treated with a, a kind of... Uh, uh, tarred with a brush that's completely different to a white footballer who's an equivalent of them. You know, we can name white footballers who have been in trouble in recent times and how maybe that they're treated by the press. 
uh, and just by society in general and kind of the things that are thrown at them. Ultimately, you have to judge things by facts. Paul Pogba hasn't been electrifying at Manchester United. I think, like we just said, you know, there's been times where, you know, there's a question about maybe his commitment or whether he wants to stay at the football club. I don't think that's born from him in terms of his personality. I think if you talk to anyone at Manchester United, he's hugely influential in the dressing room. Hugely. He talks to players. He might He's not a shouter and a screamer, but he's the guy that is a communicator and has that soft word in his play in in his teammates' uh, ear. You'll see it on the football pitch as well. Constantly, he's constantly talking to people, and it's something that people don't talk about. So, you know, I always watch it at United, and I always think to myself, that will never get highlighted. Even though he's the guy organising and telling people and saying move out. And obviously, we saw Bruno do that, and Bruno got a lot of credit for it. Oh look, we've got a guy now who leads. I don't think that Pogba is the natural captain of that side, and I don't think he needs to be. Um, because I don't think that he kind of is a is a figurehead of a football team, but he's certainly part of the bigger bigger picture when we talk about United and leadership and the issues that we've had. Um, if Real Madrid had come in with a big offer in the last six months, I think he probably would have gone. And I think the reason why he wanted to go was that he did question the board's ambition. One of the reasons why United paid the money for Bruno Fernandes was because of Paul Pogba. It was quite frank. It was quite straight. And we knew this in the press that Pogba had said to United, I don't believe you've got the ambition, so I'm going. And that's it. You know, I've got my contract's going to be running down. I will leave when I'm ready. But that's changed. And the reason why that's changed in the last 12 months is because of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. You know, Ole has a connection with some of these younger lads that he coached when they were younger. They trust him. They understand his plan, his agenda. And these are things, again, that Ole doesn't get credit for because they're kind of the hidden parts of the football club that maybe we don't see on Twitter every day or we don't see every time on a football pitch. Uh, Pogba is a big part of Ole's plans. I believe that he will sign a new contract. I think he'll be a big player for Manchester United this year. Obviously, the key is keeping him fit. This injuries, The, the two injuries that he had were fresh injuries. He's never had them before. Um, so he believes that that he'll be okay in this coming season. He's not going to break down, but of course you can never never tell those things. I get why some football fans find him an unpopular character at United, but I don't think it's his fault. He doesn't go out drinking. He's never involved in scandals. He trains like, an, like a complete machine all the time. And I think he does the bits that he's supposed to do. But he has this social media presence that puts him in the firing line and he becomes then an easier target. And I think the only thing he can do is really step away from that. But the, the problem is that Paul Pogba himself is a cottage industry, both for his agent, both for third parties and for Manchester United. They want Paul Pogba to be Paul Pogba, the superstar. They don't want Paul Pogba to be the quiet number six at the back. So I, I think that he does get a lot of aggravation that you could put down to being racial. I do think there's a connection there. I don't. I wouldn't say that every criticism of him from either a pundit or a journalist or a football fan is always based on race. That would be crazy. I think he has bad games, like every player does. I think his last five, six, seven games for United this season, I wasn't particularly impressed. Whereas, obviously, when he came back from his injury, he looked great, didn't he? Straight away, he looked like the influencer on the pitch. And when he came on that day and won the penalty for United in his first game back, you can see Paul Pogba's got everything. You know, he's a he's a supreme world-class talent. It's now up to Ole to find the correct method to get the best out of him. 
And I think that he's he's motivated to do it. And I think if United fell, and I've said this again on multiple podcasts, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer does not suffer fools gladly. If he thought that Paul Pogba was going to hurt his team, hurt his ability to win titles with United and trophies, Paul Pogba would not be at the football club. Now he would be gone. Because Ole has proved that in 12 months. Every player that he's not happy with has gone and gone fairly swiftly. And I think we'll still see it before the window here, more players to leave. Because if you're not part of his plans, Oli doesn't want you on the staff. He doesn't want you as part of that unit. He'd rather operate with a smaller playing staff and have the trust of those may start in 11. But we know that United need to strengthen the bench and other positions. And that's that's obviously the ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic answer. And something I want to just touch on quickly before we talk about uh, the next topic but you do say that um obviously Paul Pogba that social media presence you're right he doesn't drink he doesn't mess around he's never in the scandal he's Muslim and he doesn't drink but I think also what we're seeing is it's been disgusting the way that it's been reported I think what has struck me massively is that Phil Foden was in exactly the same situation, but nothing is being said, written about him. Phil Foden's the one with, with a kid and a, and, a, and a girlfriend. Mason Greenwood, uh, look, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning, I'm not condoning the the sort of the, the NOS hippie crack, like whatever, but you know what? I, I'll try and ask you, find any 18, 19 year old that hasn't done something like that. I'm, I'm, that's my first, but I'm not condoning it, but he's a public figure he has to understand. But the other thing as well is that you have the situation that happened, obviously, in Iceland. Foden's got off scot-free. And what's happened is United have done a fantastic job protecting Mason Greenwood, but the Wolves are in for him. And look, you're in the media. I don't want to insult everyone in the media because not everyone's like this. But what I have seen is you saw it with Beckham, you saw it with a few others, that when a player is being built up in the British media, there are certain sections and certain cores of it that just can't wait to just knock them back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think with Mason, this is going to be a lesson for him. It, it, to be fair, like he did um, an interview recently before, obviously, all of this kind of last couple of scandals. And and he said, you know, I'm kind of expecting stuff. You know, I've been told that, you know, I'm going to be targeted. I'm told that I've got to kind of be professional. And I've been told that I can't stay on my PlayStation all night and play Xbox because I've got to be at training the next day. Mason Greenwood is a kid. He's just come out of being... A child. So there is this transition in terms of maturity. Um, I think that both of the stories, also the England one, and obviously what we've heard recently with the hippie crap, which I think is a completely ridiculous term in terms of what it actually is. It's yeah. easy to compare it to crack. Um, it's a silly thing. It's just a it's a right wing tabloid media ploy to kind of put that out there. He is going to be judged because a he is a Manchester United player. And B, he is a young black man. And he's been told this. And it's funny, isn't it? Because on, on the other hand, you look at someone like Marcus Rashford and obviously all the kudos that he's gained in the last few months uh, across the world, you know, in terms of reporting about this, this uh, black footballer who's a local lad in Manchester and has done all these great things locally and now doing it nationally. Um, and he's, he's obviously been given big pats on the back. But he also knows that... He'd only have to put one foot wrong. We saw 12 months before where he was pictured with Jesse Lingard in the hotel room and it all blows up, even though they didn't really do anything. You know, they did things that young lads do on holiday. So I was just things, I think, individually. I don't think Mason Greenwood's done that much wrong and I don't think Manchester United believe he's done that much wrong. But it's a lesson learned for him. He is going to be held to a standard that white players in his 
position do not get held to. It's facts. This is all about systemic racism in the UK and in the West. This is how it is. You know, even ourselves here, you know, any person of colour, you know, if you're a journalist or whatever, you are held to higher standards than your white counterparts. This is just how it is. And, you know, when someone goes after you and attacks you because they don't like your journalism, quite often there'll be a racial comment in there. So you have to suck that up and do the right thing and report it to Twitter and do those things, get that person banned or blocked. That's the only way of doing it. You know, we, we saw Neymar the other night, didn't we? Obviously, punch the guy because of what happened. Really, what I'd have preferred to have seen is that Neymar just walked off the pitch with his team because that would have been the statement. That would have showed the system that if you do not tackle racism and find a way to solve it, there's going to be no football. And that's the best way to do it. And I think with Mason, the best way he can come back at this is exactly how Bex did it when he had all of that win the World Cup. And that is you come back and you win trophies and you stick two fingers up to both press and opposition fans. Ultimately, we want to win titles at Manchester United. If Mason Greenwood scores 20 goals this year and does it with flair and panache and everything that we know that he is, we're not going to care what he does. You know, he's not a bad lad. And I can say that straight off. People were saying he's like Ravel Morrison and all this. Ravel's situation was so different at United in terms of the company he was keeping and all of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, his training or his lack of it. Um, Mason's not like that. Mason is a is a good young pro. Um, and we've seen, haven't we? We know he's, the reason why he was in the England squad is because of of what he's achieved on the football pitch. He's getting no... Um, no extra points from Southgate just because he's a United footballer or anything like that. But you're right to make the comparison to Foden as well. You know, I think Phil Foden has had almost no criticism as part of this. But Phil Foden doesn't sell newspapers. Manchester United footballers do. And that's the bottom dollar. Yeah, fantastic answer, Rob. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. And you're right. Look, I've had it. I've had things levelled at me. You have. Even in school, I grew up, I've grown up in a really... You know, white area. I'm very, I'm very lucky to have had. You know, I grew up just outside Reading, so I've had a fantastic education. Parents have given me everything. Um, you know, I, I don't look at things like black and white, but you know, when even when you're in school and you're the only, you're the only coloured person, that you don't notice these things until when I went to university and I had more, more coloured friends and uh, more in touch with my culture. You know, uh, Indian and I've got a bit of Iranian in me. So when you, when you are around people like that, it, it's completely changes your complexion and even words like. You know, even for a joke, like it was like, you know, token or brownie. Like I used to laugh it mm. off. But then obviously what's been going on the last year or so, it's really sort of opened my eyes and be like, even if it's a joke, that's not okay. That you can have banter, but to to have banter, you know, I don't know, it wasn't malicious, but it's still saying you're brown or you're black and you're we're white. And then this is a point, you know, and what I will agree with is, you know, you look at Paul Gascoigne, he's revered. He's absolutely revered. And <laughs> I just, I, I've never understood. Look, he, it's not my generation. I never got to see him play, obviously, before. I, I know he was a phenomenal player. I've seen all the videos. But he, the way he acts, but Sterling has a gun tattoo. I yeah. mean, where's the fairness in that? So I completely agree with you. And, and there is a system, systematic or systemic problem in the UK, which, um, you know, is going to take, if it ever does get better. But you see on Twitter now, it seems that more people are, you look under the comments when Phil Thompson Charlie Nicholas and Matt Letizia got sacked. The comments were just, you just have to look at the comment section on Twitter. It's disgusting. You know, oh, this is BLM's fault. Oh, they're going to bring on Alex Scott. Alex Scott is one of the best pundits out there. Mm -hmm. She's phenomenal. Yeah, go on. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm I'm friends with Leanne Sanson. Obviously, she does a lot of work for Sky, and she's been doing more work recently. Uh, she's black. Uh, everybody knows she's black, but she's there on merit. And I think that this is how how it goes with with any industry, but certainly all the the industries off football. But this is a, a societal issue that we see. You know, we talk about how many black managers are there in football, how many black chairmen are there, how many people on boards are black or, or people of colour. It's minimal. You know, it really is minimal. And that's about society and the structure. And, you know, you can dig down into that until we're kind of blue in the face and you, you never really find solutions because ultimately the system has to change itself. Um, but you're right. I, you, you know, I think if any person of colour has experienced racism in the UK. I think everybody has if, you, if your skin colour isn't white. This is why we talk about white privilege. White privilege isn't about being privileged in the sense that you have more opportunities. It means that you have the opportunity not to be racially abused. And that is, that is something that I think most white people don't understand. Um, and, and I don't blame them because we're only kind of having these conversations more and more in the media, say, in the last maybe two or three years. I do say, I say that uh, we've got some great people in football working behind the scenes, whether it be with Kick It Out and BCOMs, people who have got strong voices and strong opinions and are leaders, and we need to kind of interact with these people more. It's up to the FA to actually do that, you know, in terms of the game. But I want to see football clubs being more kind of inclusive and not just do it for statistics, you know, bringing the, the right people who deserve an opportunity. You know, we, we saw someone like Darren Moore at West Bromwich Albion who did a great job and then just got kind of thrown on in the bin because of whatnot. We don't know why. Supposedly it was about his record. Well, his record was, you know, I think he was in the, in the playoffs at the time. There's plenty of managers that will, that and coaches that will can tell you stories. And I've spoken to loads of them uh, in terms of what the kind of their responsibilities are um, and how they are judged. You know, Frank Lampard gets a big football club. Stephen Gerrard gets a big football club. Sol Campbell gets Macclesfield. So you can, there's, there's so many examples, uh, but it has to come from the top. And maybe it will take maybe one, maybe a, a, a person of colour to have a, a top job in the Premier League for it to kind of, you know, smash the fourth wall or whatever you want to call it. Um, but at the moment, you know, we have a, a distinct whiteness across the board in terms of leadership in football, and so at some point that has to that has to not stop, but has to kind of be quelled, and there has to be some kind of fairness to the system because at the moment the system isn't fair. Yeah, fantastic answer. Couldn't agree more. And uh, I do say this about Lampard and Gerrard. You know, yes, they're legends, but what? And, and you can even argue to an extent maybe Oli as well. Like what? What constituted them to get the job? You look at Oli's managerial record, and this is nothing against Oli. Like, you know, I think he's great, but and even Lampard, Gerrard, if they weren't legends of the club, and I'm not saying they got picked because they were white, but there are people that say that. But what if they weren't legends of the club? Would they have been considered? Absolutely not. So, um, no, I completely agree. Let's move on to the penultimate topic. And this is again, I just make just make an extra point on yeah. that. I, yeah. I don't think that they got the job because they're white. You know, I, yeah. I, but that is what that's the definition of white privilege is that yeah. you do not have to think about being white. You know, they don't, those three players you mentioned, they got those jobs because they are legends. But, you know, you can kind of dig down and, and there are intricacies in terms of giving these three guys opportunities because they were great players and they can add that to their players. And that's why Ole came to the club to kind of reset Manchester United into a kind of more Manchester United way. He didn't get the job because he was white, but he doesn't have to think about being white. And that is that is white privilege in a nutshell. 
Yeah, no, spot on. Completely agree, Rob. Let's move on to the, the another sort of media problem I have. And one of the most frustrating things for me is that there's just lack of respect and ignorance, particularly that we see from not everyone, certain quarters of the media. I think talk sport are one of the most frustrating ones. And look, they I think they do it because it increases views let's be honest people retweet i retweeted it the other day you saw something regarding Koulibaly and Koulibaly is a world-class centre-back there's no doubt for me he's up there with Van Dijk's clear but he's up there in the top three he's had a fantastic season you had Martin Keown saying what you know why would they even go for him and it's this lack of respect and knowledge about foreign leagues and foreign players and you saw it again with uh, with Van der Beek. Uh, I can't remember who it was on Talksport. Some ex Sunderland player was saying, "You know, why why do you need Van der Beek? You've got McTominay." It's just absolute. It's just lack of disrespect. It's lack of respect. It's lack of knowledge. It's lack of uh, also desire to learn about other leagues and to watch something different to the Premier League. I watch a lot of Italian football. You've got to broaden your horizons. And what's your thoughts regarding this? Is this just a a, a British? I don't want to say an arrogance, but is it sort of a British media doing this just purely for more clicks? Because they know that if they say something outrageous, half of the fans will start retweeting it. Or is it actually a case of the British media think that the Premier League is the be-all and end-all? Because we looked at the Champions League semi-finalists, two from France, the Farmers League, one from Germany, Farmers League. And uh, obviously, who was the other one? I'm forgetting now. Who was the other Champions League semi-finalist? Leipzig. Leipzig, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> already. Yeah, it was so long ago, it feels like. So is, is it honestly a case of British media doing this for clicks or is it a genuine arrogance or a lack of desire to learn about other leagues? It's a bit of all of that. It's the truth. You know, uh, ultimately, you've got to think about the times we live in. We live in strange times. This is Brexit Britain now that we live in. The media do understand that that is their audience and they have to please their audience. You know, um, let me give you an example. Look at something like LBC as, an, as a station who have in the last, say, two years really leaned towards the right in their presenters, people like Nigel Farage. Now Nigel Farage has gone. They don't want to be associated with him. And they've brought in David Lammy, who's obviously a leftist. We, this, is, this is how you play to your audience in terms to please them. And football is no different. Football believes or, or that what it's trying to perpetuate is that the Premier League is the best league in the world. Now, I would say that it is the most entertaining league in the world. I would I would subscribe to that. I work uh, in Syria, the Bundesliga, Liga. I do all of these, La Liga. I work across Europe in, in my job. And for me, the Premier League is just the best league to be a part of because it is the most exciting. You know, some of those leagues, you do get some real stinkers of games week in, week out. But of course, there's lots of talent abroad. And there's no doubt that, you know, if you cross that little 26 mile channel to France, that lots of people in the UK do believe that you're then going after an inferior product. And it is sold back to the audience as that, is that these players. So Van der Beek, I think it's a great example that you said there, that it was Michael Gray, who you were referencing at Talk Sport who said, you know, why would they buy him when they've got Scott McTominay? It's a waste of money. But, of course, they're two completely different players on two different trajectories. Um, it's kind of a crazy comparison. It's like, why, why would you even go there? It's Why would you sell that as your punditry on that? Um, and and that is a, a that is a thing in certain organisations. I think TalkSport, again, are a kind of organisation that try to 
have started to try and balance it out. You know, they now have female presenters and black presenters. And we've only got to go back a year ago or two years ago when we were talking to people like TalkSport and saying, you need to correct your house and actually have these people do these jobs. They've, they're now going that way. So it is improving. I wouldn't say the punditry is massively improving across the board, but I think you could criticise the guys on Sky Sports as much as you do with maybe the more commercial outlets like like TalkSport and radio and things like that. Uh, there should be a better standard across the board. Um, but do they look at do they look at kind of foreign entities as the enemy in a way? I think it's easy to kind of show that if it gets clicks. And and this is the business we're in. It's about you know football is about advertising. You know if you get clicks, advertisers like that. That's kind of what they want. And you've got to find the clicks, and that's how these huge million pound industries work and Twitter is part of that ecosystem. And, you know, all of these guys are trying to, trying to turn profit and it is what it is. You know, it's not great. And as I always say to people, if you don't like something, especially in football, turn it off. If people don't like my tweets, unfollow me. It's fine. It's not a big deal because it's about kind of, you trust that person or that product or that organization. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I think this is why we have this premium on British players. You know, you talk about Jack Grealish, he signed a new contract with Villa. Uh, and we know that Manchester United were interested in him and then Manchester United went cold and Manchester United said to Villa, we're not interested anymore, it's over. And he signed a new deal. And of course, today it will be about our Jack, you know, you know, future England superstar signing a deal with his hometown club. Isn't he great? Well, you know, if the offer had come in, he would have gone to United. There's no doubt about that that we knew that at the time we that was coming out from Villa and from the camp. Um, but British players do have this kind of kudos put on their shoulders, whether they deserve it or not. Yeah, Spawn, it's something that frustrates me. You know, even a, a little while back, United were linked with, um, what's the lad from Newcastle called? Longstaff. Longstaff. Yeah, Matty Longstaff, yeah. Uh, it's just beggar's belief. And well, there's this notion yeah. in England nation in the world we've got the most talent we really don't and it frustrates me i think the most frustrating thing for me as well is that it's that clickbait aspect of it and i've always said i'd much rather have a loyal smaller base of listeners where i'm providing content which is well thought out well analyzed balanced rather than going and putting a clickbaity sort of title like sancho signs even though and i've seen people have been doing it pretty much all window and they're getting called out for it but um rob last question because i know that I mean, this has been so fascinating. I could talk about this forever, but, you know, we will have to close, <laughs> come to an end soon. But um, expectations for the season. For me, I think that United are capable of getting third spot again. I agree with you oh. what you said. Though. I don't see us, yeah, pushing. For, I don't see us challenging. Um, but I would like to see us close that gap. I think that's the most important thing. 30 points or 30 odd points to Liverpool and 19, I believe, to, to City is unacceptable. And what I'd like to see is come sort of March, April, United are within maybe 10, maybe single digit points mm-hmm. behind. I would like to see, I, I'm not one of those that subscribes to the view that three semifinals are successful. I actually think that for me, that's a bit of a weak mentality to not even make it to one of those finals. I, I, I've spoke to a few people about this. Uh, Phil Brown was on my podcast and said the same to him. He vehemently disagreed. But, um, you know, I, I think that the League Cup was one which, understandably, we were in a poor form. We didn't have Bruno or Pogba or anyone like that. And City are, are a better side, let's face it. But the Chelsea one, I thought, was a missed opportunity. I felt like Oli either should have gone full in and changed everyone or 
should have gone full in and played everyone. It was a bit of a halfway house, changed the tactics, didn't work for me. Sevilla, you know what, we could have easily won that, but but we didn't. So again, for me, Europa League, I think we would have, we would have beaten Inter as well. So I'd like to see a trophy uh, domestically, whether it's FA Cup or League Cup. And honestly, the Champions League, that's a big one for me, at least bare minimum round of 16. But quarterfinals, I think, represents a good season with this current squad. Um, what are your thoughts? Fans want trophies. That's the bottom dollar. You know, that's that's kind of what powers their emotions and makes them click every day on Twitter and read everything and consume everything. Um, for me, I think United's success would be third again. Now, I don't think top four is success for Manchester United as a football club. Manchester United need to be going after the title. That's where we. That's what we are as a football team and as a football club. Um, but again, I keep saying it to football fans. You know, I think we need to be patient. We need to make sure that we kind of taper our expectations and have them in line with the quality of our football team. And at the moment, I think we're improving. We're one of those teams. We're not near the title yet. I do believe that Manchester City will win a championship this year. They are a, a team that are ready to win. They have the players in the right places. They have the funds to go and buy maybe those extra one or two chess pieces on the board to make them better. But I think the team that United are chasing this year are Liverpool. For me, I think Liverpool will have a more difficult season this year because the last two or three years, they've been so lucky with injuries. And as soon as you get injuries to key players, whether that be a Salah or a Mane or a Van Dijk, you're in trouble. And that football team is in trouble because it hasn't got the depth. Well, it does it, they've just been lucky with injuries recently. Manchester United, for five or six years, have been really unlucky with injuries. It's almost every year we've had an injury crisis. And that, that does affect your, your points haul and your confidence and everything else that goes with it. So I think if United get closer to those top two this year, Cup runs are a funny thing. I always say I don't get motivated by Cups until we get to semi-finals. Old school United fans, I'm from that ilk. You know, remember the days where winning an FA Cup was success. I think, you know, did Van Gaal winning an FA Cup in his last year, was that success for the club? Not really, you know. So what's the point? You know, if he, if he wins, it's a nice day out. I always say go to Wembley for the day. But that's not what the football club is about. It's about how competitive we are in the Premier League first and foremost but then being in the Champions League and then how competitive we are in that competition. So I agree with you. I think the most important thing for United is to be in the mix after the group stages. That is really, that's the key for them in terms of success. That would be some kind of tick in a box as to whether we think that United are progressing. But ultimately as well, it will be over how the whole season pans out. It, a, a season is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's all cliches. But we want to see how United perform in those games against the mid-table teams that maybe they struggled against in years gone by. You know, under Mourinho, that was a problem, wasn't it? You know, any any team outside the top 10, United couldn't win against. It was a weird kind of situation. But I think Ole's corrected that, but he has to maintain it. And if he doesn't maintain it, then in 12 months' time, we'll be talking about Pochettino again, or we'll be talking about another manager. Um, so I, I hope that United can just maintain the standards that they've, ha that they've kind of set themselves over the last six months. And then maybe we see kind of incremental gain over that period. Yeah, I agree completely. Let me ask you one, one last question, Pochettino, because yeah. this is one I'm quite surprised about. He's, I, I rate him very highly. If you think about, this is not a slight on Oli, so all the listeners that might go in at me on this is not, but I'm just objectively talking about Pochettino as a manager. He went into a Spurs side and he obviously was someone who could develop young players, didn't necessarily spend a lot of money, 
almost transformed a club which is known as underachievers and bottlers. Well, they still bottled it a few times, but they were a regular Champions League outfit under him. Champions League run to the final, perhaps a little bit, um, bit lucky, I would say. But you know, they still did a good job. He still did a good job. Why is he not in the job right now? What have you heard? Because I know there were some people saying that um, very reliable people were saying United had spoke to him behind the scenes when Ole was struggling. But looking at now, the Barcelona job is gone. I fully expected him to even be in contention for Juventus. I know his his salary is very high, um, and he's he's out of a job right now. You know, you see possibly. I think he might go to City if Pep leaves at the end of next season, if he's still not in a job. And that would really, yeah, that that's my bet. And I, I'm going to put a bit of money down on that. But that would really upset me because for me, he's he's made for Manchester United. I don't think there's a manager out there who I would think is a better fit uh, than Mauricio Pochettino. Okay. When Manchester United sacked Jose Mourinho, they had a list of one of who they thought could take the football club over. And that was Pochettino. Um, Ed Woodward made no secret of it that he wanted Pochettino. He, I think he literally told the world that he wanted Pochettino, but he had a huge release clause in his Spurs contract. And at that point, nobody could see Tottenham sacking him. That wasn't something that was ever going to happen, was it? You know, if you think about Spurs getting to a Champions League final, can you imagine saying six months later that he would have been sacked? Um, is Pochettino ever going to be manager of the football club? At the moment, the answer to that is no. You know, he certainly was my choice. Uh, around that period. I see him as a builder of football clubs. I see what he did at Southampton. I see what he did at Tottenham. He fits the mould for Manchester United. But what we've seen in terms of United is a little bit of a difference, is that, as we just said there before, Pochettino is more of a kind of coach. He doesn't really get involved with signings, and he didn't really do that at Tottenham. You know, he, he was listened to. But that wasn't his job. Um, United have taken Solskjaer in because they want a manager who manages more like Fergie. And that's kind of how they see that. Um, as long as Ole has been successful in terms of building the football club, there is no room to dismiss him as it stands just to bring in Pochettino. I do think Pochettino will probably end up at a big European club as it stands. There's no place for him in, in the Premier League. But he's keen to come back to the Premier League. And like you said there about Manchester City, I think that's viable. You know, that's that would only be speculation that he he would be the first choice uh, if uh, Pep goes. I don't think Pep's going to be at City forever. I think that that is something that a couple of years may be and then he's gone. So yeah, he could be lined up for that, but he's got to work in the meantime. Um, so Juventus, I think, is a possibility for him. I would have liked to have seen him get the job at the point of when Mourinho left. But I also understand why he didn't get the job when Ole did so well in that initial run and now where we stand today. Go back to that Burnley game. If Ole had got sacked because the uh, results had decreased and gone further south, then I think Pochettino would be manager today and you would get your wish. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I feel that, you know, he's a great manager. Uh, someone had a debate with me on Twitter just yesterday telling me that I was wrong about Pochettino and that he was awful and hadn't won a trophy. Uh, and I was like, no, I think he, he's a builder of clubs and, and he would have fitted what United needed at that point. However, uh, it's not something I think that's going to happen soon. But saying that, if Ole loses the first eight games of the season and it's a complete disaster, you might see Pochettino very quickly. It could it happen like that. Most important thing is Ed Woodward loves Mauricio Pochettino, loves him. He's one of he's his favourite manager. He would love him at Manchester United at some point, and that might happen one day. But as it stands, it's not happening. 
that's very interesting. I mean, my, my view is that we will see him one day, but I agree, not now. Oli deserves, fully deserves to be back this window, deserves to make a make a real title charge or do the best he can in the season. If it doesn't work out, look, United, whether he's a legend or not, and that's my last point I'm going to say before we finish, is that he's got to be judged as a manager, not the player, because there's a lot of fans out there who... Because he was, he provided one of the greatest. I was four years old. I don't remember '99. It was just such a shame. But 2008 for me was incredible. So I can imagine how great '99 was, being one nil down. But um, you know, he's I someone. Like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But it was one of the greatest moments you'll never ever forget. He's provided probably one of the happiest moments of people's lives. So I can p- completely understand the the love and the the admiration for him. But you got you always got to, as you said earlier in the podcast, judge people on what their role is now he's a manager so he has to be judged at the same stick as he as the likes of Mourinho was and and Van Hals so mm-hmm. Rob honestly this has been one of my favorite podcasts thank you so much for taking the time today an hour and a half but you know it flew by so thank you very much mate where can where can the listeners find your uh your your content because I know you do uh, you work with the sports social don't you I, I had Jim Salverson on the other day which was great yeah yeah sports social bleach report and many other places but you can find me on Twitter uh, if you go into the search and put Rob Blanchett or Rob B, I should come straight up. Or my full handle is at underscore Rob underscore B and you'll find me straight away. Fantastic. And to all the listeners, make sure you hit the like button. This has been a phenomenal interview. We're going to we're gonna chop it up and put out little clips here and there. So uh, you might see Rob's face circling through uh, around Twitter um, for the next week or so. But um, thanks very much for listening. And-